1: in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com.
2: A candle flickers in the darkness, illuminating the face of a man you've only seen in passing. After all, You don't mix much with workers further down the production line at the Chevrolet plant. Tonight, however, he's in your basement. A light on upstairs pulls prying eyes away from your subterranean rendezvous. He slides you a card. You pick up a pen. You know the risks, but you also know what you're fighting for. You sign, and just like that, it's done. You've joined the union. Now watch your back. In the 1930s, Flint, Michigan, seemed to have a one-to-one ratio of bars to churches, but neither the barkeep nor God herself was the highest power in town. That was General Motors. And GM didn't just rule Flint, it was the largest industrial corporation in the world at the time. So how did this automotive superpower get knocked to its knees by the fledgling but fierce United Auto Workers Union? Today on Past Gas, we're taking a look at how the UAW's great sit-down strike of 1937 upended not only General Motors, but the entire American labor movement, thanks in large part to an all-female paramilitary force called the Emergency Brigade.
3: Past Gas Podcast, it's about cars, it's not about ports! Quick disclaimer at the top, Um, we know that unions, especially auto unions, are a very intricate subject with lots of ins and outs that we couldn't even begin to understand. So we aren't really commenting on the modern state of the auto unions and their relationship with the manufacturers. We're just telling a really cool story from back in the day about a bunch of really cool women.
4: I think it's safe to say that unions help workers. I I
3: support unions yeah. for sure. I like the idea of unions and unionizing, but I do know that is a very politically yeah. uh charged subject currently and we are not talking about the current state of unions.
4: There are a lot of parallels though. It is like kind of devastating to see the similarities with today's workers and stuff like that. And, like not that much has changed. In almost a hundred (laughs) years. Then we'll let the listener decide on their own.
3: It's almost as if the whole game is designed to keep workers at the
2: bottom. Dude. What? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Anyway, yeah. Today we're talking about uh, the uh, sit-down strike, of course, led by a ferocious uh, gang of gals who got it done.
3: (laughs) You sound uh, like the, the editor of the newspaper in the night. A ferocious gang of gals. Oh, yeah. Got it done.
2: They got it done. <laughs> uh, <laughs> welcome to Pass Gas. My name is Nolan Sykes. Uh, I am your host, joined by the other hosts of the show, uh, James Pumphrey. Toot
4: toot.
2: And Joe Weber.
4: Uh, let's keep it uh, fired up.
2: Oh, <laughs> mixing of the the catchphrases huh
4: keep wink wink nation on their toes
2: (laughs) um let's just get into it then huh got a lot of stuff to do no i got got a lot on my plate gotta go
3: gotta go get some blood drawn from me Uh, okay it's not medical i have a vampire fetish right Uh, so (laughs) so i'm gonna go get
2: <laughs> yeah, I've been to and the uh, the arts district. Yeah,
3: yeah. My vampire's going out of town, so I got to get my blood drawn.
4: Oh my god! Eat an orange oh. slice, <laughs>
3: and then uh, I'm gonna go shoot up to speed for the first time in a month.
2: Ooh, baby! Or
4: over and, a month? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's been, been a long time. Five months. <laughs> <even> five months. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's just get into it without
2: further ado. Let's get this going so James can go uh, shoot up to speed. James, yeah. do you want to? Do you want to tell people what the topic is or should they? uh... Um, Yeah. Rocket Bunny. That's all we'll say. In the 1930s, workers at GM's manufacturing plants were seen and treated as cogs in a machine. I almost read cogs as dogs. Uh, just saying. Uh, <laughs>
3: just saying. I, I love my little pupper pals. <laughs>
2: yeah, I do. I do. They're great. They're great. Shout out to all our
3: dog listeners out there. Our dog daddies and mommies. Wait, so they kissed all
4: the workers on the nose and gave them treats and made them shake? They get, I gave go them go little boops. D-
3: this factory would well
2: actually quite the contrary because work was endless and the factory conditions were appalling (laughs) oh that's less fun (laughs) yeah to increase production foreman simply sped up the production lines which led to frequent and devastating injuries on the factory floor one former employee recalls arriving for her shift and finding the day girl's severed finger on the press that they shared
4: oh my god they didn't even clean up her station
2: nah dude gotta keep that
3: production to clean, flowing you're supposed to clean your station before you leave
4: <laughs> I feel someone would be like just scoop up that finger for me real quick
2: yeah I mean I'd whose responsibility would that be Pocket. you know
4: yeah just no. to, I mean I would scoop it up just so I can get into her iPhone if you know what <laughs> <laughs> oh my god
3: yeah you're a real creep
2: <laughs> <laughs> not only was the work dangerous but it also paid next to nothing if you had a privilege to be white and male you were maybe raking in a hot 45 cents an hour if you were black or a woman it was closer to 12 cents an hour what is that today uh, let's look that up on the old inflation calculator probably one of my most frequently visited websites is the uh, BLS CPI inflation calculator from the Bureau of Labor <laughs> Statistics. Um, let's see, 0. 0.45 cents an hour in January of 19, we'll say 32, why not? Calculate, why not? that's 8.19 eight an hour back then. It's not great. It's just above f- minimum wage, so. 40, 45 cents is? Yeah, and so then 12, 12 cents is uh, 2.19 an hour. It's not good.
4: Man. Not good. That's not good.
2: Really bad. Yeah, that's not finger losing money. In fact, that's almost, yeah, that's definitely not finger losing money. The point is, two nineteen is a, an appalling amount of money to yeah. uh, to be working in a factory. <laughs> so, besides the low pay, women also faced widespread sexual assault from their superiors. There was a time that, because of one predatory foreman, an entire department of GM's AC spark plug division had an STD. Oh. Yeah. Not good. Factory workers at the time received no overtime, no holiday or sick pay, no pension, no social security, unemployment or health care. But they also had very little, (laughs) imagine that they also had very little leverage against the powers that be. For starters, Flint was a company town and GM had the local judges as well as the mayor, the police, newspaper and radio in their pocket. Plus working class families, were still reeling from the great depression and were poorer than they had ever been. They were in a worker starved mentality, knowing that at any point they could be replaced by someone from the overflowing unemployment office. So pretty dire situation. Getting taken advantage of, of course. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt had recently introduced his new deal, a range of domestic programs designed to mitigate the effects of the depression and reinvigorate the American economy included in the new deal was protection for labor organizations which allowed for the formation of the cio the Congre- the congress of industrial organizations and its subgroup the uaw the united auto workers union the uaw was pioneered by three brothers victor walter and roy ruther who were tenacious in their mission to achieve better working conditions for working americans and what better place to do that than the heart of the world's largest corporation, Flint. Despite
3: the New Deal protections, GM was still refusing to acknowledge the UAW and meet them at the bargaining table. Improved working conditions meant a loss in profit, and GM had no interest in that. To squash any union activity, GM management planted spies in their factories, with as many as 100 in their Chevrolet plant alone. These hired hands would pose as fellow workmen, then report back to GM when they heard the rumblings of revolt. GM even brought on lip readers to detect if men on the floor were talking union. Pro-union workers faced retaliation, whether it be getting fired or getting beaten by GM-hired goons. What a time. Because of this, UAW union recruitment meetings were held in secret. Right under GM's nose, using cloak-and-dagger tactics, the UAW was able to enlist enough members in Flint to take a real stand against GM.
2: And they were going to do it with dyes. With what? What? What?
4: Does that intrigue you?
2: Yeah. They're going to do it with dies. GM was certainly not alone in this. I just want to say, uh, Henry Ford famously had his own secret police force at the, uh, Dearborn plant or the River Rouge plant. My bad. Uh, Or wait, was it the Dearborn plant? Anyway, one of his early plants, he had a secret police force. Um, and they famously got into a, a battle with, uh, union organizers where, uh, they just beat the living out of people and uh, and journalists that were covering the story as well. It, if you wanted to be in a union at this time in at a, at a auto manufacturer, you were probably you're, you'd probably uh, expect to get in a fight or two about it. Uh, do
3: dangerous. you think that do you think that you guys would be a union man
2: or would you be one of the goons that beat people up? Uh, definitely a union man. Yeah, mm.
4: I would be a scab for sure. <laughs> love scabs. yeah so
3: you're cool with me Nolan you'll probably find yourself
2: under my baton one day great you know love to work for a guy who uh, identifies with the goons in the story uh, really cool family's gotta eat I want to be like the like the brainless
3: goon what a great aspiration
4: <laughs> like the Goomba from Super Mario Brothers
3: like uh, I want to be like John C. Riley from uh, Gangs of New York. Gangs of New York. Yeah, I want to be like John <laughs> C. Riley from Gangs of New York. I'd betray everybody. In the manufacturing world, a die is a tool that cuts or shapes material mainly by using a press. General Motors dies would stamp out the car body components for all their vehicles. Oh, mm-hmm. this is where uh, M&M worked in in Eight Mile. Out of GM's many manufacturing plants, only two of them actually housed these dyes, and one of them was located in Flint at Fisher One. With 7,000 workers churning out 1,400 Buick, Pontiac, and Oldsmobile car bodies a day, Fisher One was the biggest car body factory in the world. Without access to it, GM's production rate and revenue would plummet. So that's where the UAW was going to strike. Okay, okay. The strike wasn't supposed to happen until after the new year, but on December 30th, 1936, the UAW learned that GM was planning to move the dyes out of Fisher One. Mm. They moved quickly and instructed their members to shut down the production line. The risk on striking was huge, and the chances of such a scrappy new union beating out the world's largest corporation was slim. If the strikers didn't succeed, they'd never work in a GM plan again. They would be destitute, blacklisted in a town beholden to their enemy. But if they could pull off a victory, the reward was well worth it. The machinery screeched to a halt. The UAW had claimed Fisher won. It was GM's move now. Knight to rook two. <laughs> I don't know if that. I don't know if that's good. A, a Knight good move. to
4: rook two. <laughs> <laughs> I've
3: been watching uh, the Queen's Gambit. Is it good? Uh, yeah, but none of it's sticking. I don't.
4: Can't retain anything.
3: Yeah, I'm not. Re- i no. I'm just like I don't know. I don't know how to play chess. All of a sudden.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you told your one piece to move to another piece, so I, yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a rook too. I think is a square on the board. No, it's the
4: it's the white square. <laughs> no. No, they're they're
2: arranged by letters and numbers like a grid. Uh-huh. A rook is a piece on the board that moves in a in straight lines. It's the castle.
4: Who are you Bobby Fisher?
2: Look, I've played a few rounds of online chess uh, back in the day. Okay.
4: Oh, you like chess? Name all them. <laughs>
3: yeah,
2: it's knight to rook too. That's a move. Well, well, well. <laughs> if it isn't the con, if it isn't <laughs> my my long-standing tradition of sounding very confident about something and then being wrong. We yeah. meet again.
3: Yeah, I, I freaking told you i'm watching the (laughs) queen's gambit back
2: to the show uh
3: the company the company immediately went to court which they controlled and got an injunction to have the strikers removed from the property when they presented the injunction the strikers were like cool paper we're not leaving until you give us union recognition also, the UAW discovered that the judge who had ordered the injunction owned more than $200,000 in GM shares in that's 1937.
2: A, that's a lot of money. I bet that guy's life was fun.
3: So rich judge in the 30s. That's like $3.6 million today. So going through the courts didn't work. GM would have to find another way to break the strike. In the meantime, the men inside Fisher One were faced with something extremely foreign to them. Free time. To keep up morale and pass the time, the strikers played cards, checkers, chess, darts. <laughs> they danced and did group calisthenics. Hell yeah! They had music concerts with instruments hoisted in through the factory windows and slept on car cushions that were no longer making the way into Buicks. Wow, this is a long strike. Sounds pretty fun. But it wasn't all fun and games. Strikers understood the need for order in the plant and set up their own civil system. A mayor was elected as well as other civic officials for departments like sanitation, information, and a postal service. Rules were set and those who broke them were put on trial by a kangaroo court of their peers with punishments ranging from dishwashing to, in extreme instances,
2: expulsion from the plant. That's if you did a... a, a Top shelf in the bathroom. (laughs) Yeah. You got expelled.
3: Yeah. But the sit-down strikers holed up inside the plant were only half of the equation. Outside of the plant, UAW members and supporters picketed in front of the entrance day and night. Food was cooked and delivered to the men inside. UAW leaders, including its president, Victor Ruther, visited often to boost morale, either going inside to deliver union directives and strike tactics or relying on sound cars. Cars with loudspeakers mounted on them to blast out messages of encouragement. I wonder if they were GMs. After GM's <laughs> injunction tactic failed, they tried a more defamatory approach. They used Flint's newspaper and radio to paint the strikers as radical communists whose primary goal was to disrupt the economy. Hmm. And <laughs> did for me here.
4: Uh,
3: they also visited the wives of the striking workers to plant seeds of distrust. While these selfless women were home running the households of single moms, their husbands, GM claimed, were off at the plant drinking booze and ordering burlesque dancers. But if GM thought that factory wives would be easily manipulated, they've never met Genora Johnson.
4: <laughs> Genora.
3: They've
2: never met <laughs> Genora Johnson. Genora was born in Kalamazoo, but grew up with her fairly well-off family in Flint. Her forefathers had been some of the town's founders, and her relatives worked high up at GM corporate. It wasn't until age sixteen, when she met her future husband Kermit Johnson and his <laughs> factory wor- worker father Carl, that she'd get a glimpse of how the other half of Flint lived. Kermit, great name. You know who loved that Kermit Johnson, Miss Piggy.
4: Oh, Kermit. <laughs>
2: Through the Johnsons, Janora became aware of the plight of the industrial worker, a cause she would end up dedicating her life to. It was Carl who first introduced Janora to socialism. They would discuss uh, literature, subscribe to socialist papers, and together with similar thinkers they formed the Flint branch of the Socialist Party of America in 1931. Uh, She dropped out of private school her senior year to marry Kermit and they welcomed the first of their two sons the following year. Shortly after becoming a mother, Genora fell ill with tuberculosis and had an extended stay at the county hospital. But even that couldn't stop her curious mind as she filled her time study, studying up on socialism, community organizing, anti-racism, and workers' rights. She was idealistic and full of fire with an internal moral scale that always pointed towards justice. Genora was just 23 years old when the Fisher One strike began. Kermit was working in the huge Chevrolet complex at Plant 4, a dreary engineering manufacturing plant with conditions so bad it was nicknamed the Hell Hole. And they were both extremely active in the local union. But as Janora saw the organizing efforts unfolding, she detected a huge block in the community that was being overlooked. Women. Organizing women had always been difficult within the UAW, or any union movement really. Men could walk away and go to the Union Hall, but women at the time were isolated at home, tied to their kitchens and nurseries. The UAW actually sent female factory workers out of the Fisher One plant when the sit-down began, fearful that a co-ed strike would breed reports of hanky-panky that would undermine the Union's efforts. But Janara knew there was untapped power in Flint's women, and organized an offshoot of the UAW called the Women's Auxiliary. It was comprised mostly of female relatives of factory workers, but also included female auto workers and outside supporters. The women's auxiliary served the union and the strike in a variety of ways. They walked the picket lines, cooked and delivered food to the sit downers, they raised money, they ran a first aid station, and set up a daycare center so auxiliary members could organize more freely. Members were dispatched to speak with wives of factory workers and set GM's lies straight. The women's auxiliary made striking a family affair when they organized the world's first ever children's picket line which gained national attention. With women in the fold, the movement was stronger than ever.
4: I mean I feel like getting kids to like make signs and stuff is a good activity. And then and then yeah. they like wear themselves out on the picket line then they sleep better. <laughs>
3: Wish I could get my dog to carry a pick, picket line a little bit. Wear, wear her out. She goes crazy at night, man. Bite me.
4: Okay, boomer,
3: Hurting me. A little dog hurt hurts my hands at night. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, see- I'm seeing the parallels that you were talking about, Joe. Like, this is such... I mean, this has just been such a... A kid holding a a sign is such a part of our, like communal vision now like that's such a familiar yeah, thing to us currently the men at fisher one were now two weeks into the strike a much longer siege than most had expected some strikers were defaulting on house and car payments others had simply lost the faith a number of workers abandoned the strike but not enough to seriously hinder it unfortunately the strikers weren't the only ones suffering gm was too
4: Fortunately, sorry oh uh,
3: fortunate yeah <laughs> You gotta remember, I'm, I'm a goon. <laughs> <laughs> Goons rise up. <laughs> Goons rise up. Get down. Boop, boop. You stop. Strike it. Back to work. Boop, boop. Fortunately, the strikers weren't the only ones suffering. GM was too. The company had only been stamping out parts for the 37 model Buick for about a month when the strike began, and Buick plants all over were starved for car bodies. Hmm. Still, GM refused to bargain with the UAW. Solidarity strikes were in effect at 15 other GM factories across the nation, including a plant just two miles down the road from Fisher 1 at the aptly named Fisher (laughs) 2. Located in the massive Chevrolet manufacturing complex where Kermit and Carl Johnson worked with more than 10,000 others, the plant produced around 400 Chevrolet bodies a day. Its strikers had successfully taken over the top floor which meant union members and allies had to deliver food and supplies by ladder. On January 11, 1937, GM took advantage of this logistical weakness by removing the ladders, thereby cutting off the men's food supply. What's more, they shut off the heat in 16-degree weather. The strikers were irate. A group of them came down to the first floor where GM security guards were stationed and demanded the front doors be unlocked to let the food in. GM security insisted they didn't have a key, so the Strikers broke down the doors. That was the hostile act GM needed to activate their private security and call the city police, who by many accounts arrived far too quickly, like they had been forewarned. The radio dubbed the Strikers' rioters, hmm, sounds familiar, as cops descended upon the factory in gas masks, firing tear gas, firebombs, rifles, and buckshot. Yep. Jeez. They tried lobbing canisters of tear gas inside the plant, then opted for an easier target. The huge crowd of picketers assembled out front, including Janora Johnson and members of the Women's Auxiliary. A full-on battle raged on Chevrolet Avenue as the unarmed strikers fought back with whatever they could find. Workers chucked heavy automobile hinges and bricks at the police while protesters tossed the cops firebombs right back at them. Picketers blocked the road with their own cars to stop the cops from closing in on them. And when the police tried to sneak into the building, strikers from above pelted them with fire extinguishers and roof tiles. This is pretty sick. Factory men blasted police with fire hoses and water, the water almost instantly turning to ice in the frigid Michigan winter. They flipped over police cars to create barricades, including the sheriff's car. And he was still in it. <laughs> this feels like uh, the the Lakers just won. Yeah. <laughs>
4: No, I'm a Lakers fan. Ah! (laughs) Uh,
3: The battle raged through the night. All the while, Victor Ruther and the other Union men used the sound car to encourage and mobilize the strikers. But the Union leaders had a problem. The batteries on the sound car were running out. They stood no chance in all this chaos without it. Resigned, Victor told those around him, We may have lost this battle, but we're not losing the war. But Janora, who had refused to leave while other women's auxiliary members were ushered away from the crossfire, was unable to accept the idea of defeat.
2: I mean, what's crazy, uh, what's crazy to me is that this whole battle happened because GM didn't want to pay more than basically above, like, didn't want to pay minimum wage, more than minimum wage, you know? Right. Just Mm -hmm. insane.
4: But instead, they hire probably what costs way more in, like, security guards and for sure all this other stuff it's kind of like to a lesser extent how lyft and uber spent 200 million dollars to lobby for
3: right just to not pay their workers
4: yeah like just use that money to pay your workers or like give them health insurance
3: dude jeff bezos has like 121 billion dollars or some something like that and uh there's 7 billion people on our earth so you could like give everybody a billion dollars and still like like i would do that Because that would just fuck up the whole world economy. I'd be like...
4: $121 billion, but there's seven... So that would mean he could give everyone like a million. He'd give everyone a billion? No. 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 Then there would be... If he had seven... (laughs) (laughs) If he had... uh, Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. If he had a trillion dollars or something, he could give everyone a billion.
3: Well, you give everyone... I would just give everyone a ton of money
2: and just like screw up the World Bank. I mean, I don't even know if it would screw up that much cuz like when you're talking about 7 billion uh, that's a I
4: wonder if that would I don't make think crazy would, inflation. Like if a No, a because I don't even think you'd have enough like,
2: money to like give people a ton of money. Yeah, he's you know? trash. Yeah, he did it.
3: <laughs> Despite having never used one Janora took hold of the loudspeaker and addressed the cops. Cowards. Cowards her voice cracked through shooting in the bellies of unarmed men and firing at the mothers
2: of their children. This is cool. This is a cool movie. Um, so the economy crashing amount of money that Jeff Bezos would be able to give everybody, mm-hmm. uh, is $17. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs>
3: a hush fell over the battlefield and the crowd of observers gathered beyond the police. Janora's voice was the first indication that there were women caught up in the melee, and the public was appalled. Janora rallied the women in the crowd, imploring them to break through the police lines and stand by their men, whether it be their husbands, brothers, uncles, or sweethearts. Oh! One woman stepped forward, then another, and soon a mass of spectators broke through the police lines. As they marched towards Janora's voice in the center of the action, police didn't dare shoot them in the back. Their hand was forced. The police retreated and a huge roar of victory swept through the union crowd. The battle had been won. Though 16 workers and 11 police officers had been injured, no lives were lost. Later, when asked about her rallying cry that night, Janora replied, Your heart just comes out through your mouth. That night, the unioners lit bonfires and sang songs of victory. They dubbed the evening's confrontation the Battle of Bulls Run, a tongue-in-cheek reference to the police having to flee. Haha, <laughs> the bulls. Bullies! Uh, The battle formed solidarity Across the movement with men, women Strikers and picketers all in the fight together Like never before News of the union's victory on Chevrolet Avenue Quickly spread beyond Flint And boosted the morale of strikers all over the country Awesome
2: Something tells me this ain't over yet though
4: Yeah Because we're
2: we're two thirds the way through the script Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah
4: We'll be right back with more
3: of this story But first, a word from our sponsors
1: in just a few taps because when it comes to getting the most out of your home you can do this when you angie that download the free angie mobile app today or visit angie.com that's dot com.
2: the next day governor frank murphy sent in the national guard it began with 1100 troops stationed at the chevrolet complex but that number would nearly quadruple by the strike's end. Governor Murphy was not beholden to GM in the way that the local government was. He was not sending in the National Guard to punish the strikers, but rather to act as a buffer and keep the peace. The governor called on GM to reinstate the workers' access to heat, water, and food, and called on the strikers to honestly just tone it down a little bit. Uh, Both sides obliged, but the National Guard wasn't the only militant force in town. After seeing what a difference the women made in the Battle of Bulls Run, Janora decided to form the Emergency Brigade, a paramilitary group within the Women's Auxiliary that could be called on to fight alongside the men. Just one day after the battle, 50 women had already signed up. At the next Women's Auxiliary General Meeting, hundreds more followed, aged 17 to 70, until 400 of the group's roughly 1,000 members had volunteered. If you're keeping track, the Emergency Brigade is an offshoot of the Women's Auxiliary, which is an offshoot of the United Auto Workers Union, which is an offshoot of the CIO. A lot of layers. Yeah, a lot of offshoots. Uh, the Emergency Brigade was organized on a military basis. Genora was the captain with five hand hand-picked lieutenants serving under her, each with their own platoons. Three of these lieutenants were female factory workers, including Janora's two right-hand women, Ruth Pitts and Teeter Walker. Teeter's a cool name. The brigade armed themselves with large wooden clubs, though some carried secret weapons on wristlets that they could flick out from under their coats in an instant like they're freaking in Assassin's Creed or something.
4: Like Gambit. Like Gambit, (laughs) yeah, they
2: (laughs) Uh, I don't even know if that's accurate, but it's funny as hell, Joe. Uh, Their uniform consisted of a red beret and red armbands with an EB sewn by members of the Women's Auxiliary. At the time, they didn't realize that an all-women paramilitary group like this had never been organized in the United States. According to Genora, quote, we didn't know we were making history and we didn't have time to think about it. That's the right attitude.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: The Emergency Brigade landed on the front page of the New York Times and people all over the world took note of Janora Johnson who is dubbed the Joan of Arc of organized labor. Women in nearby cities saw what a difference they could make and formed their own emergency brigades. The Detroit Brigade wore green berets and armbands, Lansing Michigan wore blue and Pontiac wore orange. Let's tight. And then they all get together Power Rangers. <laughs> <laughs> A month into the strike, the UAW had forged widespread unity among the working class and proven that they were a force to be reckoned with. But GM was still refusing to consider negotiations as long as the sit-down strike was in effect. The UAW needed to shake things up and hit GM where it hurt. They held Fisher 2, but they were hoping to secure another plant within the Chevrolet complex and set their, rights, set their sights on plant 4, the hellhole. Ooh, where do you work? <laughs> the hellhole.
4: <laughs> uh, no, it's not that bad. We, uh, <laughs> uh, there's fire and everyone's hot all the time.
3: And- it's like a Greenland, Iceland thing. Uh, the hellhole <laughs> is actually
4: pretty nice. It's a pretty nice hole. It's
3: more like the heaven hole, but you don't go to the heaven hole because the heaven hole is actually a hellhole. <laughs> Secret battle plans were made to capture the hellhole, drafted up by none other than Kermit Johnson. But Walter Ruther and other union leaders pushed back, deeming Plant 4, the factory in which all domestic Chevy engines were made, was too big of an objective. 2,000 men worked here, each shift, and it was well protected by armed GM security. It was an enormous gamble. Flint was the life source for the national strike movement. Losing here meant losing the entire war. But successfully taking Plant 4 could force GM's hand and earn the UAW a seat at the bargaining table. Kermit and Genora pushed and pushed until the other leaders relented. The sit-down would happen on February 1st at the change of shift. They would take plant four. Dude, they've been doing this for like a month. Yeah. The day before the takeover, a carefully selected group of unwitting union members were told about the plan, but one key detail was altered. This group, which was known to contain a GM informer, was told that the sit-down would happen at Plant 9, a much smaller plant at the far end of the complex near the administrative buildings. Mm. The next day, Kermit's plan unfolded just as he had hoped. The informer snitched to GM, who readied city police and moved corporate security from all over the complex to Plant 9. Strike breakers and gas masks, armed with clubs, filled the adjacent buildings, ready to attack. As soon as the men in Plant 9 initiated the sit-down, city and corporate police converged. The two sides clashed with workers defending themselves with small car parts. Hell yeah. (laughs) The diversionary (laughs) battle had begun. Five minutes after the shift change, union operatives across the complex in Plant 4 snapped into action. Worker Theo Robinson recalls pulling switches to shut the machines down as his foreman scurried alongside him, screaming that he's fired. Brothers Ed and Henry Lean marched into superintendent's office and asked him to leave. When he refused, they threw him out. Dang. Uh we get That's like, all
2: I have to offer is dang.
3: Yeah, well like <laughs> that's like Timothy Chalamet and uh 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 Harry Styles play
2: those guys. <laughs> yeah, we get like two of the most <laughs> recognizable and expensive talent yeah. in the industry for like a bit part. <laughs>
3: yeah. We we pump up I mean we we're gonna have to combine some characters here,
2: Nolan. All right. Fair enough. So Fair those enough. guys are gonna have a much bigger part. And then they do like a musical bit at the end. And they kiss.
3: Janora <laughs> <laughs> and the emergency brigade had joined the fray over at Plant 9, though Janora was the only one who knew the real plan. Her goal was to keep the police busy at Plant 9 as long as possible so the union could secure Plant 4. But things got out of hand when the police unleashed tear gas inside of Plant 9. One worker smashed open a window gasping for air. The emergency brigade swiftly used their clubs to knock out the factory windows and get the men inside some air. But too many workers needed medical attention to continue the fight. Despite union members trying to keep things stirred up using the sound car, the battle was winding down. GM thought they'd gained the upper hand. (laughs) But they had no idea. As the fighting dissipated, Janora led her five lieutenants around the corner and told them the real objective. Plant four. The group of women casually ambled so as not to draw attention.
2: We're just going to amble over there. We're just going to saunter over there. We're not doing nothing. We're just going to amble over there. (laughs) We're (laughs) just (laughs) ambling. Oh, a bird.
3: Nothing to
4: see over here. Just some women ambling.
3: (laughs) Don't mind our matching berets and arm
4: bands.
3: (laughs) They ambled a quarter mile to the hellhole to check on the progress of the occupation. When they arrived, they found the Union men struggling. Sit-downers were fighting with scabs, Joe, you scab.
4: Kill my people. <laughs>
3: uh, Sit-downers were fighting with scabs and foremen in a mess of fist fights and chaos. The strikers had managed to get control of the front gate, which they entrusted to Janora and her lieutenants. Hold that gate, they pleaded. Don't let the police come through here. Janora sent one lieutenant back to Plant 9 to rally the brigade, while she and the remaining four women linked arms and formed a human chain across the entry gate. Moments later, the police arrived. They told the women to move, but they wouldn't budge. Ginorling and the others tried reasoning with the police, many of whom had relatives who worked in the factories. It didn't matter if they could convince them to see their side. It was a matter of distraction. Every second the women could keep the police occupied was another chance for the men inside to secure the plant. But they couldn't hold them off for much longer. The police, frustrated with the women's obstruction, started pushing them around, and just when all hope seemed to be lost, they heard it. The Union Anthem. Solidarity forever wafting in as the emergency brigade and the red berets, American flag flying high, crested the top of Chevrolet Avenue. The police faltered, the brigade marched in. The union men arrived with their sound car, and Genora climbed in to mobilize their troops.
2: We'll get back to more past gas, but right now, a word from our sponsors.
3: The women of the brigade linked arms and set up an oval picket line in front of the factory, blocking the police from entering. And once again, faced with the option of backing down and firing upon a crowd of unarmed women, the cops were forced to retreat. Against all odds, the UAW had secured Plant Four in what has since been described as the greatest strike strategy in the history of American labor.
2: Dang, <laughs> dang, wow, <Whoa>. dang, <laughs>
4: dang! Does uh, <laughs> sound <I'm> pretty smart. <laughs> yeah,
2: I mean that's. That's like some extremely uh, efficient organizing, you know?
3: Yeah, dude, that's sick. I guess that's why they call these people
2: organizers. Yeah. (laughs) In the days following, Governor Murphy brought in more National Guardsmen with the militia, now cordoning off the entire Chevrolet complex. GM sought a new legal injunction threatening to fine sit-downers $15 million if they didn't vacate the premises within 24 hours. When the sheriff delivered the injunction, the same sheriff whose car had been flipped at the Battle of Bulls Run, the strikers booed him out of the factory. Governor Murphy, who'd proven himself an unexpected ally to the Union cause, refused to enforce the injunction. Rather than intimidating the Union, GM's latest threat only strengthened their resolve. The successful takeover of Plant Four, in addition to the occupations of Fisher One and Two, finally wore GM down. The strike had caused 90% of GM's production to stop due to the lack of parts and labor, and the company could no longer survive without these factories. Five and a half weeks after the strike began, back-channel negotiations between GM and the UAW commenced in Detroit. But the negotiations kept hitting a snag. GM refused to re-employ strikers who had committed any acts of violence or sabotage during a strike. But the homey Governor Murphy interviewed to facilitate, and 44 days after the strike began, an agreement was signed. The UAW would terminate the strike and evacuate all occupied plants, and GM would not discriminate against strikers and would recognize the UAW as a bargaining representative for plant workers. The agreement covered not just the three occupied plants in Flint, but every GM plant in the United States. Thanks in large part to Governor Murphy's handling of the ordeal, not one life had been lost. News came to the sit-downers who rejoiced. GM had knuckled under. The UAW had finally won, and they could return to their families. Fisher One was the first to evacuate. They marched out of the plant right over to the Chevrolet complex where workers from Fisher Two and Plant Four joined them. The vibe was jubilant. They were dancing in the street. A victory is ours banner hung in the factory windows. Roy Ruther likened it to a country experiencing independence, quote, it was a sea of humanity, he said, in which fears were no longer in the minds of the workers. The UAW's victory in this strike has been regarded as the most important event in American labor history. The UAW, founded just two years prior in 1935, earned legitimacy as a union, as it won workers a myriad of rights, including wage increases, holiday and sick pay, overtime, and pensions. Workers were now paid for their time, not for their output, meaning that they would take home their pay even if the production line stopped. Beyond that, it proved to other industrial workers in America that change is possible and provided them a blueprint to usher it in. Union organization proliferated across the country, starting with Chrysler, then Ford, and eventually encompassing the entire auto industry and beyond but the uaw victory didn't just alter the workplace home life was forever changed as well as wages and conditions improved in factories working class americans were afforded more stability income and time with their families children improved in school and working class parents finally had enough savings to send them to college for the first time working class kids could extend their dreams beyond flint and the factory floor. Blue-collar pride set in, and workers felt entitled to get involved in politics. It was a whole new Flint and a whole new America. In the years to come, the little UAW would grow into the most powerful union in the world. Today it has more than 400,000 active members and more than 580,000 retired members in the US, Canada, and Puerto Rico. Janora Johnson died in 1995 at the age of 82. She was active in community organizing until the very end for as solidarity forever reminds us in joyous refrain, "quote the union makes us strong."
3: What a bad bird! What a bad bird!
2: <laughs> Very inspiring story. Uh love those that emergency brigade dude bunch of bunch of bad <clears throat> women.
4: I think the most powerful moment for me was when she first got on the sound car, and everyone was like, "Whoa, what? <laughs> a woman?" And then that's like the. That was the catalyst for all this change is like people were like, oh, wait, this is like a bigger problem than just like these worker dudes that they think are like trying to everything up. Mm -hmm. You know who won uh, who never lost the entire time was the scabs, though. They got to work (laughs) during the strike. They got to work after the strike. Basically the perfect situation.
3: Well, the, the goons were getting paid during the strike, too. Probably better than the scabs. <laughs> and they just get to go back to be the foreman, which is the boss. Yeah. And they get to plop some people. So, really, the winner is the is the company
2: goons. Anyway, uh, thank you very much for listening to Past Gas this week. A little different this week, but I think still very related to car history, obviously.
3: Um, and a lot of
4: parallels to what's going on today.
3: And the people at the top do such a good job of distracting us from the fact that we're the worker. And yeah. the worker, like workers' rights is what we're talking about. And
2: a lot of people who don't support workers' rights are workers.
4: But you can't fault them. They're, they're all getting tricked. They're all being manipulated. Well, on that note.
2: <laughs> yeah, thanks for listening. Tell a friend. Follow Donut on all social media. Add Donut Media. Follow Uh, The boys, Joe G. Weber and James Pumphrey and me, Nolan J. Sykes, Uh, thank you to our writer this week, Rachel Foreman, and thank you, as always, to Bridget, our producer. Be kind. I love you.
4: Organize. See you next time.
2: (laughs)